I often try to open a message with something surprising that you may not have known, but let me instead open with the least surprising thing ever, which is to tell you that this past week I was reading about the Puritans. And as I was reading about them, I was thinking about how similar their day is to our day. I was thinking about the day of, say, Jonathan Edwards, who in the 1730s wrote these great books and sermons that people continue to read to this day. And how he was ministering in a time when the prevailing thought in the world was that Christianity was on its way out, that theism was on its way out, that the idea that there is a God in heaven and that we should look to the scriptures and to the church for guidance was fading quickly and philosophers were writing just volume after volume about why that was the case pointing at all of the many moral failings of the church. In that day, it was things like, oh, the Salem witch trials and things like that. And how today, much of the very same dynamic is at play and how depressing it can be. And yet, when we think about the 1730s and how God worked, it's encouraging. When we think about how in that very bleak setting, when everyone who had been holding to Christ kind of even tacitly, even as a, well, I don't really live like a Christian, but we all have to acknowledge the good book and the good Lord, we're starting to say, I don't need to look anywhere but inside myself. God moved in that setting. And we had what we call the Great Awakening, in which many, many people flocked to Christ and were saved in which Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield and other people preached a powerful message that people would then hear and suddenly abandon this worldview that they had started to embrace. And I wondered what exactly, if we could, like Bill and Ted, go back in time. You know, they went back in the, in the uh, phone booth and they grabbed Napoleon and they grabbed, you know, Socrates. It was under Socrates. All these guys brought them back to San Dimas, California in the present day and had them just kind of present their own case in English somehow. What if we could do that with someone like Jonathan Edwards? We can't know what he would say, but I would bet green money it would sound a little something like this. Deuteronomy 32, 35. Their foot shall slide in due time. In this verse is threatened the vengeance of Almighty God against all wicked, unbelieving people who, living under the means of grace, persisted in neglecting those means of grace. Under all the cultivating of heaven, they brought forth bitter and poisonous fruit. And in these few words, taken in their context, their foot shall slide in due time, we see a number of things regarding the punishment and destruction that will befall such people. First of all, we see that they were always exposed to destruction. Just like someone who stands or walks on slippery ground is always exposed to falling. Their foot ready to slide. The same is written in uh, Psalm 73. Surely you have placed them on slippery places and have cast them down into destruction. We also see that they are always exposed to sudden, unexpected destruction. Just like if you are walking on an icy sidewalk, you cannot know in one moment whether in the next moment you'll still be standing or will have fallen. And when someone in that state falls, it happens quickly and without warning. And they fall of themselves. 
without anyone shoving them or tripping them. Nothing more than their own weight is needed to bring them crashing down to the ground. And that it says here that their foot will slide in due time also tells us that the only reason they have not yet fallen is because the due time, God's appointed time, has not yet arrived. As soon as the appointed time comes, their foot will slide. And then as someone who stands on slippery, declining ground over an open pit cannot stand on his own, as soon as God is no longer holding them up, they will slip and fall and be lost. The clear implication of all of this is that there is nothing keeping wicked people out of hell at any given moment but the pure will of God. There is nothing keeping the wicked people of the earth walking around living their lives out of hell at any given moment but the mere will of God. And when I say the mere whim and will of God, I mean his sovereign power, his arbitrary will, restrained by no obligation, hindered by no manner of difficulty. And we see the truth of this when we consider several things. First of all, that God is in no way lacking power to throw his enemies into hell. Human hands cannot be strong when God rises up. The strongest cannot resist him. And as we just read in his word, no one can deliver from his hand. Not only is he able to cast his enemies into hell, but he is able to do it most easily. Sometimes earthly princes will have a hard time in subduing a rebel if he has time to fortify himself and multiply his followers. Not so with God. There is no fortress that can stand against his power, even if a multitude, a vast multitude of his enemies were to join together and stand against him, they would easily be broken into pieces. They're like great heaps of light chaff before a whirlwind or mountains of dry stubble before devouring flames. And just as you or I might find it easy to singe or cut a thread by which something hangs, so it is easy for God, when it pleases him, to cast his enemies into hell. What are we then that we would think to stand before him at, at whose rebuke the earth trembles, before whom all the rocks are thrown down? Secondly, we must consider that those deserve to be thrown into hell, and so divine justice raises no objection to God exercising his judgment at any time. In fact, justice calls out with a loud voice for infinite punishment of their sins. Justice says to the tree that bears the fruit of Sodom, cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? The sword of divine justice is always brandished over their heads. And only the hand of arbitrary mercy, God's mere will, holds it back. Thirdly, we see that the sentence has already been decreed upon the wicked. The eternal and immutable rule of righteousness that God has fixed between himself and us, his creation has gone out against them and stands against them. As we read in John 3.18, Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. 
All unconverted people then properly belong to hell. From there they have come, and to that place they are bound. It is the place that justice and God's word and his unchanging law have assigned to them. They are objects of the same great anger and wrath of God which is expressed in the torments of hell. And the reason that they are not now in hell is not because God is not angry, In fact, God is far more angry with many who are walking around on the earth today, perhaps even some who are in this very congregation, quite at ease than with some who are even now undergoing his eternal judgment. It is not because he is unmindful of our sin that he has not loosed his hand to cut us off. God's anger burns against them. Their damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is stoked. The furnace is ready to receive them. The glittering sword is wet and hangs over their head, and the pit of hell opens its mouth beneath them. The devil stands ready to fall upon them and claim them as his own. They are his possession under his dominion. God's word presents them as his goods. Meanwhile, the demons stand by, ever at their right hand, waiting, ready like a greedy, hungry lion, looking at its prey, expecting to have it, but only for a time held back. Should God remove his restraint, they would surely in a moment fall upon these poor souls. There is laid up in the very nature of natural man principles which in the foundation of the torments of hell, if they were not restrained, would burst forth and kindle into flame. These are the very seeds of hellfire. God's word compares the souls of the wicked with the troubled sea, churning, waves going back and forth. And just as God has set the limit and said, to this point shall you crash and no further, if he were to remove his restraint, then we would see crashing forth into destruction. You see, sin, sin is the wretched misery of all souls. It is destructive of its nature. And if God were to remove his restraint on it, there would need be nothing else to make people perfectly miserable. The corruption of the heart is so immoderate and boundless in its fury that it would readily take every soul that it indwells and turn it into a furnace of fire and brimstone. What's more, it is no security to wicked men that they do not see how they might die anytime soon, that they are healthy, that they look around and see no accident waiting to happen. It is the unchallenged and universal experience of men in every age that this is no assurance at all that your very next step will not be into the grave, into the next life. You take a step, boom, bus, that's it. That's all she wrote. The unseen, unthought-of ways and means by which God can remove you from the world are so manifold, innumerable, inconceivable. Unconverted people walk over the pit of hell as on a rotten covering. And there are many places in that covering too weak to bear their weight. And those places can't be seen from above. The arrows of death fly unseen at noonday. The keenest eyes cannot discern them. And it is also no security that some are smarter or wiser than others. If that were the case, we'd expect to see different mortality rates for the wise and the foolish. Instead, we see what Solomon wrote about in Ecclesiastes when he said, How dieth the wise man just as the fool? 
God has so many unsearchable ways of removing wicked people from this earth and casting them into hell that he need not even perform a miracle or work outside of the course of ordinary providence. And so, again, it is the mere will of God that keeps them from judgment at any moment. Now, wicked men, they toil greatly in putting together many clever schemes to avoid eternal punishment while still rejecting Christ, therefore remaining wicked men. Almost all who hear about hell flatter themselves that they shall avoid it. They think to themselves, I will escape this fate. And they look to themselves for their security at what they've done, what they're now doing, what they intend to do. Each one has, has fixed matters in his own mind, how he shall very cleverly make a way out. When they hear that but few are saved and that apart from Christ, all are already damned by their sins, they think to themselves, but I've been craftier than others. I shall escape. And they delude themselves in this, this confidence in their own strength, in their own wisdom. They trust in but a shadow. There are many who came before them who were stronger and wiser and are now in hell. And if we were to ask them, if we could gather them together and inquire of them, when you were alive and you heard about hell, did you ever think for a moment that you would be the subject of its torments? Undoubtedly, we would hear them one after another say, no, I never intended to come here. I never thought I would. I thought I had made great crafty schemes. I thought I should give a good answer to God when I stand before him. But it came upon me quickly as a thief. Death outwitted me. The wrath of God was too fast for me. Oh, my cursed foolishness. I, I flattered myself. While I was saying peace and safety, sudden destruction came upon me. And of course, God has placed himself under no obligation either to grant eternal life or to deliver from eternal death. He has made no promises whatsoever along those lines, apart from those promises that are included in the covenant of grace, rooted in Jesus Christ, in whom every promise is yes and amen. But certainly, those who are not children of the covenant have no interest in its promises or its mediator. And whatever they may imagine or pretend about some implied promise that God will honor earnest seeking and knocking apart from Christ, it is plain and manifest that whatever prayers they might make, whatever religion they might pretend to, until they put their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone, God is under no obligation to spare them from judgment for even one moment. Let me summarize then. The wicked find themselves in the hand of God held over the pit of hell. They deserve the fiery pit. They have already been sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked and is indeed more angry with many who are now alive than many who are now in judgment. And they have done nothing whatever to appease or abate this anger. Christ has made no promise to set them free from it, apart from the covenant, and now the devil is waiting, hell is gaping, the flames flash about them, threatening to swallow them up. The flames in their own heart struggle to burst forth into hellfire, and yet they have no interest in a redeemer, though there is nothing else at hand that they could take hold of. They have no refuge, nothing to hold on to, nothing but the uncovenanted, unobliged mercy of a provoked, mocked, and enraged God. So, what's the application here? 
I bring up this awful subject to awaken unconverted persons in this congregation. What you have just heard is the state of everyone who is outside of Christ. This word of misery, this lake of burning brimstone is stretched aloft beneath you. And there is nothing between you and hell but thin air. Nothing to stop your fall. Like when Wiley e. Coyote runs off the, the cliff and looks down and for just a second says, Why aren't I falling? And then he does. And when one falls, when the appointed time comes, what will there be to stop you? You see, you, you look around and you don't recognize what is holding you back. That it's God's hand of arbitrary mercy and only for a time. You see that you're not in hell presently, but you don't see God's hand in it. Instead, you look to your healthy body, the care you take of yourself, the means that you use to preserve your life, but all of these things add up to literally nothing. Your wickedness has made you, as it were, heavier than lead, tending downward toward hell. And if God were to remove his hand, if he were to let you go, you would cast yourself down into the bottomless pit, into the gulf of flames. And at that time, your healthy constitution and all of your care and prudence and all your best schemes would do about as much in stopping your fall as a spider web would do in stopping a falling rock. What's more, creation groans against you. The earth if it were not for the sovereign will of God, would not even bear you for one moment, for you are a burden to it. The sun does not willingly shine its light on you that you may satisfy your lusts and serve sin and Satan through it. The world does not willingly yield its increase to feed your wickedness, nor does it willingly serve as a stage on which you might act out your wicked life. The air does not willingly spark the flame of life within your vitals while you use your life to serve the enemies of God. These things are all good, and they were designed to be used to serve God, and they groan when they are abused and used in ways that are at such great odds to their reason for being created. The wrath of God is like waters, great waters that have been dammed up for a time. And they rise higher and higher and increase more and more. But as the judgment is held back and the waters rise higher and higher, so your guilt increases. It is true that punishment against your wickedness has not yet been executed, but in the meantime, you are treasuring up more and more judgment. The waters wax higher and more and more mighty. And when God removes his hand, the floodgates will open and all the fiery flood of the fierceness of the wrath of God will come forth upon you in infinite fierceness and omnipotent power. And were your strength 10,000 times what it is or 10,000 times that, it would be no use for you to withstand or endure it. This is the state of everyone who has not passed under a great change of heart by the power of the Holy Spirit in their souls. Everyone who has not been born again, who has not become a new creation, who has not been raised from being dead in their sins to a state of new and formerly unexperienced light and life are sinners in the hands of an angry God. No matter how you may have reformed your life in many ways, you might even be in some ways religious. 
You have a form of religion in your house, in the house of God, amongst your family. Even so, until you put your faith in Christ, it is still only the arbitrary will of God holding you back from being swallowed up into eternal destruction. And however unconvinced you may be of the truth of what you're hearing right now, by and by you will become convinced, as have many who came before you who said to themselves, peace and safety, but then had to, to face the fact that what they'd been trusting for, for peace and for safety was thin air and empty shadows. Oh, sinner, think of the fearful danger you are in. You are suspended by the thinnest of threads. Around you lick the flames of divine wrath, threatening to singe and burn asunder in a moment, and yet you have no interest in a Redeemer? Though you have nothing to lay hold of, nothing to keep the flames away, nothing of your own, nothing you have done, nothing you can do. So let's change the subject a bit and talk about whose wrath it is. It is the wrath of the infinite God. Now, were it just the wrath of a human, that would be relatively little to be regarded. Even the greatest prince or tyrant. People dread the wrath of monarchs because they can result in some of the most extreme tortures that human art can invent or human power can inflict. But the greatest of all human despots, clothed in their greatest strength and glory and their most terrible fierceness, are but grasshoppers before God. They are nothing. They are less than nothing. Their love and their hatred are insignificant. Because the wrath of the king of kings is as much more terrible than their wrath as his majesty is greater than their majesty. Hear the words of Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. How dreadful is the state of those who daily and hourly are in danger of such great wrath and infinite misery. But this is the dismal case of every soul in this congregation who has not been born again. No matter how moral or strict or religious or sober you may otherwise be, oh, that you would consider this. Whether you are young or old, there is reason to believe that there are some in this very congregation who will be the subject of this torment to eternity. We know not who they are or in what seats they sit or what thoughts are now in their head. They may be very much at ease. They may be hearing these things with amusement or without much disturbance, flattering themselves that they are not the people the Scriptures are talking about. If we knew that one person here was headed in that direction, would we not together raise up a lamentable and bitter cry around them? But rather than one, how many will likely remember this very discourse in hell? It would not be a wonder if there is someone here in health, quiet and secure, who will be dead soon, before perhaps the end of this year. Your damnation does not slumber. It comes swiftly and in all probability quite suddenly on many of you. You have reason to wonder why you are not even now in hell. There are those who have gone before you who do not deserve hell more than you and who seem just as likely as you to go on living. Their case is past all hope. But you find yourselves in the land of the living. 
and in the house of God. And you have such a great opportunity today to obtain salvation. This wonderful day of mercy when Jesus Christ himself has thrown wide the doors of mercy and calls out in a loud voice, come all who will. A day in which many are flocking to Christ and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are coming from north and south and east and west. Many who until very recently were in the same miserable condition as you, now in a happy state. Their hearts filled with love for the one who loves them. Now rejoicing in the hope of glory. How can you rest for even a moment in this condition? Are your souls not as precious as the souls of those in Asia and Africa and South America who are even now flocking to Christ in greater and greater numbers? Are there not many elderly here who have lived long on this world and yet have done nothing but to treasure up more and more judgment against the day of judgment? Oh, beloved, your case is particularly dangerous. You cannot bear the fierceness and wrath of the infinite God. And you, young men and women, will you neglect this precious season that you are in? When many of your age are, are turning to Christ and renouncing youthful lusts and youthful vanities, you have a particularly great opportunity. And if you neglect it, you will find yourself, as all the others, who wasted their youth in sin. And so let all who are outside of Christ suspended over the pit of hell, whether old or young or middle-aged, hearken to the loud call of God's word and providence. For this great day of grace will be for many a day of great vengeance. Hearts are hardened and guilt increases when people neglect their souls. And surely we are living in a day when God seems to be gathering in his elect in all parts of the land. The Holy Spirit seems to be pouring out as it did in the time of the book of Acts amongst the Jews in the days of the apostles. The elect will see and the rest will be blinded. And if this is you, then you will curse this day. And you will curse the day that you were born to see such a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit and wish that you had died and gone to hell before you ever saw it. Surely now, as in the days of John the Baptist, the axe is laid at the root of the tree, and whatever tree does not bear good fruit will be hewn down and cast into the fire. Therefore, flee from Sodom. Flee. Flee to Christ. Fly. Look not behind you, lest you perish. Look to the mountains, lest you be consumed. How would you like to sit under preaching like that every week? Everyone's too scared to talk. What happened? Pastor Sachs, he was just so nice. Now, not even those who lived in, in Northampton and attended Jonathan Edwards' church heard that kind of preaching every week. He preached the whole counsel of God. But this was a message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, the most famous sermon of the past few hundred years, uh, almost word for word, although I don't know where that wily coyote thing came from. I actually toned down some sections of it for you as well, so you're welcome. But many, many people from many, many churches and no church at all heard this message and were greatly impacted by it. And, and I'll tell you what, it wasn't even preached that way, actually. A lot of the revivalist preachers, George Whitefield and others, would you know, powerfully, bombastically preach judgment and things. Jonathan Edwards would grip his manuscript, read his message word for word in this high-pitched monotone quiet enough where you had to kind of struggle to hear 
And it worked for him. I spared you that as well. Can you imagine that? But even with that bizarre delivery, people heard this message. And, and there are stories of people swooning and passing out on the ground. There are stories of people getting under their pews and covering their ears because they were too convicted of their sins and they couldn't bear to hear anymore. In fact, this actually began kind of a, a debate about the physical effects of the Holy Spirit on people in that world. But this is what we call fire and brimstone preaching. In fact, this is where we get the term fire and brimstone preaching. It uses that term fire and brimstone twice in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it has its place for sure, although I certainly wouldn't want to hear it every week. And if someone were preaching like that every week, I would say you're missing a lot of opportunities because there's a lot more in the Bible besides threats of judgment for those who do not follow Jesus. But I think perhaps in, in turning away from that, we've gone too far in the opposite direction. Because now we don't even talk about judgment, really. If you hear of someone as a so-called fire and brimstone preacher, what do you think? Oh, he's got a car on blocks in his front yard. He thinks the world's flat. You know, this is very simple. He doesn't understand the nuances of the Bible. And yet, for almost all of Christian history, this was a major part of presenting the gospel. We don't even have the same grid anymore. We don't think about people uh, in the middle between heaven and hell and, and their souls hanging in the balance. Instead, we talk about people having a personal relationship with Jesus, a phrase used literally nowhere in the Bible. We've changed our diagrams. Now, instead of thinking about heaven and hell, judgment and reward, we think about uh, you know, the chasm. You've got me over here on the edge of a cliff. And you've got uh, God over here on another cliff and this great chasm in between. I can't wily a coyote my way across, so I need the cross as a bridge to walk across. And of course, now I'm the one doing the walking across, taking myself from a place of judgment and putting myself into a place of, of blessedness, having that personal relationship with Jesus. Here's a problem with that. Everyone already has a personal relationship with Jesus. The most hard-hearted atheist has a personal relationship with Jesus. It's not any relationship anyone would want, but it's personal. Personal as in judge and judged. What we need is not to, to have a personal relationship with Jesus or to experience God. The Bible is full of accounts of people who are experiencing God personally and say to him, please get away from me. I cannot bear to experience you any longer. What we need is a new relationship. What we need, as Edwards brings up several times, is a mediator. So that our relationship with him will not be that of squasher and squashy, because he has made a way for us to have a new relationship, a relationship of blessing at the cost of his own son's blood and death to give us a new heart. And when the gospel is presented with no mention of judgment, I guess it can still be the gospel, but it's certainly not complete. We don't even talk about being saved from hell anymore. There was recently on, on a podcast I listened to, a guy named Shane Rosenthal went around the Christian Retailers Convention, and he asked everybody he could find with a microphone, he said, hey, answer a question for me. What does Jesus save us from? And people had the weirdest answers. Most common was from ourselves. Second commonest was from our sins. That's correct, I suppose. I suppose from ourselves in some tertiary way is correct. But he said, what about from the wrath of God? Quoting scripture, indeed. And no one wanted to make that claim. And yet that's what the gospel is. Our God is a righteous God. He has wrath against sin. And God in Christ reconciled the world to himself by being killed on a cross 
the wrath of God poured out on him as our substitute. I've heard some say, I don't like to talk about us being saved from anything. I just like to be talking about us being saved to eternal life, or to newness of life, or something like that. Come on. What if I told you I was going to save $100,000 in the next six months? And you said, where are you going to save that from? Not your paychecks. And I said, no, 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 I'm not going to save it from anything. I'm just going to save it to my bank account. Simple. So simple. You'd think I was nuts. Or what if I, what if I gave Dave a ride to an elders meeting? And we got there, I said, hey, everyone, I, I saved Dave's life. And they said, what are you talking about? You saved Dave's life from what? No, not from anything. I just saved his life to the elders meeting. They would all be like, oh, Zach, getting worse every day. We have salvation implies and demands that we are saved from something. We are saved from the fires of hell. We are saved from the wrath of God. We are saved by the mercy of a loving God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You know, we all love John 3.16. I love John 3.16. Say it with me. For God so loved the world. Okay, you know it. That whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Who knows John 3.17? Keep going. You got it. Anyone know John 3, 18? That's the one that he quoted here. Whoever believes is saved. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already by his sins. And so, you know, we have a story of creation, fall, and redemption. And, and creation is good. God says, yes, it's good. It's very good. Redemption is obviously good. Consummation, when the kingdom comes and the, the wedding feast of the Lamb happens, is good. The one part that we contribute, that middle part, the fall, that's the part that doesn't make any sense. And we, we ignore it because it doesn't make sense. We can't ignore it. It's because of the fall that re redemption is needed. Sin doesn't make sense. If it did, it wouldn't be part of the fall. Disease and, and suffering and illness and anger and hatred and all these things that come rippling out of sin don't make sense. Judgment. We look at it and we say, wait a minute, how, how can we square this with God's love for us? Listen, he, he came and squared our account on the cross, but the things that are associated with the fall are part of the gospel all the same. They are what brought it about, what necessitated it. And when I hear people say something like, well, I don't want to put God in a box, so let's not talk in these terms. God put himself in the box when he said, I will limit myself so that you can have a relationship with me where you're not burned to a cinder every time we interact. When he set up the temple system of sacrifice and things. And ultimately, when he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross, he put himself in a box. It's a gift box. And he makes a great promise to us in that covenant. Not that we'll have a relationship with him. We already had that. Not that we'll have a personal relationship with him. We already had that. But that we'll have a relationship of blessing. You know, we were reading Romans 1 a bit in our Sunday school class this morning, talking about all the sins of all the people that causes God to hand us over to our own shameful lusts. But after that comes Romans 8, in which we read that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the very chapter that tells us we can call him Abba, which is not just father, but a term of endearment that a little child would use when talking to his father. There is no condemnation. Our hearts are changed. And I love this sermon. I think it's great. I don't think he overplays the judgment of God in the least. But I do think perhaps he underplays the grace of God. 
Because the grace of God is so amazing, so great, so mind-blowing that it cannot be relegated to two paragraphs at the end of a sermon on fire and brimstone and judgment. Rather, we ought to think about this amazing grace anytime judgment comes to mind, the two together. That we deserve sin and, and uh, temptation and all these things coming our way. We give in to them. Now we deserve uh, eternal separation from God, and yet God closed the gap. God saved us. God made us new. We need not be sinners in the hands of an angry God. We can be sinners in the hands of a loving God. In fact, in Christ, we need not be sinners at all. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the powerful preaching of the Great Awakening and for, for the gospel being proclaimed in a way that shook people awake when they were in a complacent stupor of, of spiritual torpor. And Lord, we know that you raised up people to preach at that time. And Lord, you raised people up at all times to, to bring the gospel to bear. But we pray for another time of revival in our land. We pray that our, our age of turning from the gospel and mocking the scriptures and, and laughing at the church would give way as it did in the early 18th century to a time of revival. That people would recognize the emptiness of living just for themselves and would feel that pull within their, their hearts Godward. And someone would proclaim the gospel showing them how they can have not just a personal relationship with you, but a relationship of father and daughter, father and son, a relationship of blessing, to dwell in your house with you forever, to be your beloved. Lord, we pray that we would not forget the reality of judgment, but that we would even more than that think and dwell on the reality of your grace your mercy, your love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In your holy name we pray. Amen.